I want to invite you today, speaking about our faith uh, working, that you would open your Bible to the book of James chapter 1. Today we begin a new book, James chapter 1. If you don't know where the book of James is, it's after Genesis before Revelation. It's there in the New Testament, after the Gospels, between the Epistles, and after Hebrews, before 1 Peter. Such an incredible epistle there that where we learn what it means to live out our faith. The theme of the series that we're going to go through, we're going to title it Faith That Works, that our faith works. And James, as many of us know, is the half-brother of Jesus. He's a half-brother of Jesus because we know that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. So there, James was the half-brother of Jesus. In fact, Paul in the New Testament called James a pillar of the church. In Galatians 2.9, Paul says this, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, James was such a pillar, a leader, a a uh, point of strength in the church as he followed Christ with a great devotion. In fact, early church history tells us that James was such a man of prayer that his knees had large, thick calluses, making them look like the knees of a camel. Think about that. He always on his knees were praying before God. It was trials that kept him praying. Trials that kept him prayer. That's exactly what trials should do in your life. This should change your prayer life. And what James is doing here is he's writing to the Jewish Christians that were persecuted by the Roman Empire because of their faith. They're undergoing trials here. And the instruction that he gives to the church as they're undergoing trials is to stay in God's will. And right now, in fact, as you are coming to church, as you have your Bible open, uh, I, I want to encourage you with the very same thing, that even if you're going through trials or persecution or opposition, the instruction is the same. Stay in God's will. This epistle here, as we give an introduction, before we go on to the first few verses today, is, has been called the Epistle of Applied Christianity. This is where you apply your Christianity. This is where your Christianity, your faith, comes to life. In fact, it provokes the question, is your Christianity real? Do you really believe in Christ? Do you really have faith in Jesus Christ? Does your faith work? Are there any symptoms of your faith really working? Any symptoms of the life of Christ flowing in and through you? Because if your faith is real, it will be a faith that works. Now, a lot of us, and we all know through Scripture that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by God's grace as we trust in what He has done on the cross to forgive us of our sins. But a faith that saves is a faith that works. What does that mean? That you don't just listen to a message. You don't simply say, I believe in God, but you take it beyond the walls of this building and in every place or area where you live your life. Yes, faith alone saves, but a faith that saves, a faith that is real, is not alone. How do you know that your faith is real? It, it will be demonstrated. It'll produce works. 
There's going to be symptoms of life in you, of Christ living in you. This reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus speaks to work out your faith, to live out your faith. Now, now what does a faith that works look like? Well, notice this. It inspires action. After you listen to the message, I had a teacher in Bible college tell me once, now it's time for you to put shoes on it and make it walk. Now it's time for you to live it out. It endures. It produces doers. That's what a faith that works looks like. It responds to God's promises. It, it's obedient. How about this? It controls the tongue. We're going to talk about that later on in the chapter. It acts wisely. It's submissive to the will of God. Now, the central theme of this book, as we go into it, is spiritual maturity. If your faith is working, you're going to continue to grow. And that is the message that you would grow as a believer. That's the greatest, number one, need and problem in the church. Did you know that today? Spiritual maturity. And God is looking for men and women today to carry on his work that are growing in their faith, that are standing in the gap, and they're saying, we're growing in the Lord. We're not just growing old, we're growing up. I like what Warren Worsby says when he says it this way, not everyone who grows old grows up. There's a vast difference between age and maturity. Ideally, the older we are, the more mature we should be. But too often, the ideal does not become the real. Age does not mean maturity. How many times do we say, you know what, I've been coming to church for 30 years, I've been maybe reading my Bible for 30 years, but are you growing? You could be repeating year one 29 times. And here what he's saying, age doesn't mean maturity. And through the epistle here of James, what we learn is that God is using this epistle as a tape measure for the Christ formation process in our lives. You know what Paul said in Galatians 4.19? My little children from whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. But what is the ultimate goal of Jesus for the Christian? That Christ would be formed in you. That we would be transformed more into the image of Christ. And this tape measure here through the book of James, you know what it's used for? To, to facilitate those exact cuts and changes in your lives. As we're all under construction, as God is building us, as God is molding us to be more like his son, we are becoming more like Jesus. We are becoming more holy. But it's also a mirror, the Bible says, where we look at ourselves and we have to be honest about what we see, what we need to change in order for spiritual maturity to take place. Now, in the first chapter, notice when talking about faith, he says, how should your faith work when you're going through trials? How should your faith look as you are facing certain tribulations? Now, you notice here that the warning is that when we trials are present and temptations are present in our lives, there, there's a constant now temptation to sin or to compromise or to disobey. And sometimes we think, well, I'm going through this trial and you become discouraged, so you begin to disobey God. And here he's saying, don't do that. Live what you believe. You see, many of them wanted a position of teaching here in the church. They wanted to disobey the word of God. They were attracted to 
to worldliness in the, there in the world. They were showing favoritism to, to the rich. They, they didn't watch their tongue. All of these things were evidences of spiritual immaturity, that the church had not grown up. So here he says, you must grow up in your faith. Does your faith show that you truly are saved? And I want to invite you this morning that you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in James chapter 1, from verses 1 through 8. I'll read the odd verses, and you read the even verses out loud together. It would say this, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we look into your word, Lord, it is a mirror. It is a tape measure. It convicts us. It shows us where we need to grow. And I pray that today, Lord, we would grow from your word that we would receive and that we would apply that we would use this, Lord, that we would demonstrate to you that we truly believe in that which we proclaim, in that which we profess. So, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Open our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, together we would say, amen. You may be seated. There in verse 1, you see that James gives the greeting. James, the brother of Jesus, but he says this, James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to underline there the word bondservant because this is where James now self-identifies with an attitude of a slave. He says, James, a slave who submitted to God. That's what a bondservant was. A bondservant wasn't just a servant. He was the lowest type of servant of that day. He was considered a slave. And he says, I'm a bond servant. I'm a doulos. That's the Greek word we're familiar with, hearing. What that means is that I voluntarily serve the Lord in a way that's submitted. And this is the position. This is the, the title. This is the identification that he gives to himself. I'm James who submitted to God. Now, many of us, if we were the half-brothers of Jesus or in the family of Christ, notice what we would have put, maybe James, the brother of Jesus. We would want to use a different title or a different position or something that would identify ourselves with more importance. Notice what James does. He has the right attitude and he maintains now the mindset of a submitted slave. But notice what he says there. Not only is he a bondservant, but he says, God is my master. The Lord Jesus Christ is my master. I'm living for him. I'm serving him. My life has been offered to him. I live 
to please my master. Who's the master of James the bond servant? Notice he says, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only the Father, but also the Lord, my master, who happens to be my savior. I love that James begins the letter this way because what he's given an example of and saying is that he who is my savior is also my Lord. Notice what he says that. Oftentimes we call him savior, but we haven't made him Lord yet. And he says, he's my savior, but he's also my Lord. I'm submitted to him. I live to please him. I'm a slave. I live to now serve in a way that pleases my master. And notice after he has given himself that identity of a bondservant of God. I think every one of us here as we're following Jesus should have that same mindset. That my identity is in that I serve and I live to please God. But then he says to the 12 tribes, notice that are scattered abroad. Who are these 12 tribes? He's speaking of the Christian Jews. To the Christian Jews that are not sheltered, but they're scattered. You see how the church here was scattered during a time of persecution? The, the church was not comfortable. The church was not sheltered within a building. Due to persecution, the church had to spread out. We know that happened in the book of Acts when the Lord told them that they would receive power and wait until they, they're in Jerusalem until they had been filled with power from on high, and then they would go out and preach the gospel. But after they were there, notice, what did God use to push them out of Jerusalem? Persecution. And how many of us know that church history says that persecution is always a backdrop for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is during dark times in culture in the world of persecution, of opposition, of oppression to the truth, that the church then has the opportunity to endure. The church then expands, it evangelizes, it mobilizes during those moments of heavy persecution. So he says to the church that is scattered abroad with the truth, to those that are being persecuted, greetings. This is how he opens this letter. Now it's important that he says it this way because we're learning here how to grow from trials. We're learning from the trial. It's vital that we learn the value from the trial and not miss out on the lesson. And he says, you're going through trials, but I don't want you to miss out on the lesson. Even this last Wednesday night, we're looking at Joseph's life and speaking about how God has his purpose in everything. God has his purpose in everything. In the trial, we receive revelation from God. In the trial, notice what else happens. Your faith is going to be tested. You learn a lot about your own character. So he's saying, in light of all that, make the decision to remain submitted to God. In fact, there are four commands that we see there from verses 2 to verse 8. I want to give them to you that you would write them down. In order to experience victory in the trials, he commands four things. Number one, a joyful attitude. A joyful attitude. Number two, an understanding mind. Number three, a submissive will as you're going through trials. And then finally, a believing heart. This is what we must cultivate. This is what we must exercise as a command when going through trials in order to learn from them. And there in verse two, this is how we grow. Number one, a, with a joyful attitude. This is why he says, my brethren, 
count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I go through a trial, I'm not usually the first one to get joyful about it. And we don't usually get joyful about it. This is why he says, in order to learn from trials, cultivate a joyful attitude. He says, my brethren, you are my brothers. You are my brethren. You are believers. The first command is this word count. And he says, count it all joy. It's a accounting financial term, that word count. That means as you're going through trials, evaluate or consider it as an opportunity for joy. When you're going through trials right now, maybe you can be at work or your health or your marriage. Maybe a financial situation as you're going through a trial. Well, notice you can evaluate, you can consider it as an opportunity for joy. This is our privilege. This is our command. This is our responsibility that you would make a choice, that you would make a conscience commitment, that in the trial, it wouldn't be simply discouragement or resignation or retreat, but it would say, I am making a conscious choice, even through the trial, to consider it all joy. Did you know that's the only way you can learn or grow in the trial is when you count it all joy? But you can't count it all joy if you're always complaining in the trial. <laughs> there are times that we go through trials and what do we begin to do? We, we're complaining. I can't believe this just happened to me. Or this is so unfair. Or this is not right. Or you want to retaliate. Or you want to fight back in the trial. How you treat the trial says a lot about your spiritual walk with Christ. Are we griping? Are we complaining? Or do we have the attitude of joy? You know how you cultivate joy in a trial? It, it, you really do this when you're walking in obedience with God. When, when there's gratitude in your heart, when you're worshiping, when you're fellowshipping, when you're, when you're coming to prayer, when you're reading your Bible at home, all of that allows you to count it all joy. Now, why does he say count one more time? Because your outlook determines your outcome. The way that you look at things determines the outcome in regards to what you're going to get out of it. And he says, when we face trials in life, we must evaluate them. We must count them in light of what God is doing in us. Look at those trials in light of what God is doing for us. When you go through the trial, you can consider it all joy because you know God is doing something in your life. Our values determine our evaluation. When you're spiritually minded, you can see God is doing something I may not understand in this trial. Now, if you value comfort more than character, trials are going to upset you. You're going to be upset. You're going to be frustrated, disappointed in trials. If you value the physical over the spiritual, you're not going to be able to count it all joy. He says, I want you to count it all joy. Consider it as an opportunity for joy. When? When you fall into various trials. Now, do you see there that he uses the word when and not if? Sometimes we think, well, you know what? I don't want to go through trials. I heard it be said before that trials are not electives in God's school. You know what they are? They're required courses. And if you want to graduate unto maturity, spiritual maturity, you have to take those required courses. Sooner or later, the testing will come. 
And notice that test is not intended to give God an opportunity to see how we're doing. That's not what it's for, but it's to see how far you have come or have failed to come in your faith. It's to help you grow. And this is why it says, when you fall into various trials, the word various means diverse. Count it all joy every time you fall into any type of trial. It signifies affliction, persecution, or trial of any kind. Any kind of trial that comes your way, you should consider it all joy. When troubles of any kind come your way. You see, it's not limited to one type of trial. It doesn't matter what type of trial you are facing right now. You can count it all joy. When you, when you encounter any type of trial. Now, why? Because your joy is not based on the trial. Your joy is not based on the circumstance or in how you feel, but in what you know. Sometimes when we go through the trials, we don't feel good. We're upset. We, we want people to get out of our way if we're going somewhere, right? We become very impatient. But how many of us know that God's grace is sufficient in every trial? He gives us the strength. He has promised us to give us the final victory. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus told the disciples this, These things I spoke to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. But cheer up. But have joy. I've overcome the world. You can rejoice in this trial, knowing that I'm producing something in you. You don't have to be surprised. Sometimes we think, you know what? Everything bad only happens to me, right? <laughs> you know what Peter told the church that was going through persecution as well? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, would you note this? He would say, beloved, don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though something strange happened to you. Don't think it's only happening to you. Don't be surprised when trials come your way. In fact, but rejoice instead to the extent that you are now partakers of Christ's suffering. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly joy. You can rejoice that you're also partaking of suffering the way Christ did and that he's doing something in you. Now, you see here that the number one thing, first of all, that he says that we ought to cultivate as we go through trials is an attitude of joy. But notice the second quality that he says that we must have or command. He says an understanding mind. Not simply an attitude of joy, but also an understanding mind. Why can you count it all joy? Notice the word there, verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces one thing, what? Patience. The very thing that we don't like, right? Sometimes we go through the drive-thru and we can't believe. You made me wait five minutes to get my food. Are you serious? But notice what happens here. Knowing this, you can count it all joy because of what you know, not because of how you feel. If you base everything upon how you feel, you're going to be very disappointed in life. Trust God about what you know, knowing God is working for my good. I can count it all joy, regardless of what type of trial it is or is coming my way, 
knowing now that the testing of my faith produces patience. See that word know, it's that Greek word gnosko, which means to know by experience. I know by experience that God has his best intentions for my life. I know that God has a purpose. I know that God has a plan. And my experience walking with Jesus, my experience with his word reminds me as I know that the testing of my faith, it produces or it accomplishes something else. And that's called patience. Now notice this, that the trial is a what? Test. The trial is a test to your faith. When it comes to growing up in God's school, what happens when you fail the test? You have to take the test again. The testing of your faith. This is a test to your faith. This is a test to prove the genuineness of your faith. How about that? This trial is a test to prove the validity of your faith. And he's saying the testing of your faith through this trial will produce patience. It will accomplish patience. will give forth patience. What's that word patience mean? Maturity. Dependability. Perseverance as a Christian. Strength as a Christian. You go from being a baby, emotional Christian to one that is enduring and trusting in God. Knowing that the testing of your faith, your faith is being constantly tested through trials. Now, what you know makes it easier for, fa for facing trials and then benefiting from them. Remind yourself, what do you know as you're going through trials? Then you will benefit and find the spiritual value in every test. I like what the New Living Translation would read. Verse 3, it says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. How does your endurance grow when your faith is tested? When your faith is tested, then your endurance has a chance to grow. You see, this word patience that it describes there in verse 3, it doesn't describe passive waiting. You know what it is? Active endurance. I'm enduring this difficult season. That's what it means to be patient. Yes, this trial is hard on my physical body or emotionally or relationally, or spiritually, but I'm enduring. I'm actively enduring. It's not the quality that helps you sit quietly in the doctor's waiting for your turn. That, that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to that quality that helps you finish a marathon, that although it is painful, you endure until the end. You see what patience is talking about here? Endurance in the life of the Christian. Now, this type of patience is not something you can fabricate or possess without pressure, without pain. You need trials to help you out with this. You can't go into a classroom and say, you know what, I learned today, endurance. Or you know what, I learned today from a message or from a lecture what it means to endure. That is not how endurance happens. You know how endurance happens? It requires a trial. It requires a test. And that's what it's talking about. Consider it all joy. In fact, that word patience at its root, what does it mean? To remain under. It's the picture of someone that's carrying a very heavy load and choosing to stay there instead of escaping. I'm going to choose to carry the burden of this trial or this task. 
I'm going to endure this situation instead of escaping. It's a frame of mind that, that now wants to endure, that chooses to endure. Why does God want you to be patient? Why does God want to mature the Christian or to have the Christian mature? Because that's the key to any other blessing, endurance. Did you know that patience is that key to every other blessing? Today we want to have everything overnight, to have growth overnight, maturity overnight. Know this, growth is not automatic. You don't just wake up one day and think, well, you know what? I feel so spiritually mature today. That's not the way it happens. You know when someone that's truly spiritually mature is the one that's gone through many trials and has endured in their faith. And what do we learn through that endurance? We learn to wait on the Lord. We learn that God will do great things for us. Because the child of God that doesn't learn patience, notice this, doesn't learn anything else. They're just going from place to place until they try to find something that satisfies them. Learn to be mature. Learn to endure. Immature people, you know what they are? Impatient. They want everything right now. But mature people are, are patient. Mature people are persistent in their faith. They're, they're trusting in the purpose. They're trusting in the plan of God. In Hebrews 6, 12, notice what the apostle would say, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those through who faith and patience inherit promises. You want that blessing that God has in your life? It's going to take that you trust God and that you're patient. God is doing something in your faith. And God tests us to bring the very best out of us. The devil will tempt us to bring the very worst out of us as well. So we must consistently know this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It proves that you're really born again. It is God doing something inside of you. What did Paul tell the church of Rome? Romans 5, 3, he says this, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. We rejoice. We're glad in tribulations, knowing, there's that word again. We glory because we know that tribulation produces perseverance. It produces patience and perseverance character and character produces hope. Do you see that? Every tribulation, God uses it as a way of training up his children to be more like him so that we're weaned off from these immature, childish things that we like to draw on, that we like to hold on to. So what is it? It's a joyful attitude. Not only is it a joyful attitude, it's an understanding mind, knowing. But it's also, verse 4, a submissive will. How are we to respond as we're going through trials? But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Notice that word, let. So first he says there, count, no, but let now. Let, this is important now. This is a submissive will. Let God have his perfect way in your life. Don't refuse what God is doing in your life. You know what happens when we start to refuse what, the, what God is doing in our lives? We make trials harder than what they have to be. We make the situation more difficult than what it needs to be instead of waiting on the Lord. 
You know what a submissive mind does? It obeys God joyfully. It says, Lord, whatever you're doing, I trust you. I obey you. I'm waiting on you. So he says, let patience have its perfect work. God can't build that character without your cooperation. If we submit to him, he can accomplish his work. Notice that. We, we must not argue with God or with God's will. In fact, you know what we should do instead? We should accept God's will and say, Lord, whatever you ask of me, that's what I'll do. I remember talking to an elderly Christian, so sweet. She told me a few years ago, you know, whatever it is that God sends me, that I'll gladly accept. Never forget that. Whatever God sends me, I'll gladly accept. Well, we're doing God's will from the heart. In Ephesians 6.6, 6, notice what the word would tell us, doing the will of God from the heart. Let God do what he needs to do in your life. Let patience grow. If we grow impatient in difficult situations, notice, if we grow impatient, then we won't grow spiritually. Do you see that? If you grow impatient, then you will not grow spiritually. That's God's word for all of us this morning, patience. That's what God is telling us. You know what he's saying? I want you to wait. I want you to endure. I want you to trust me. But he gets, because it takes time for a person to reach full maturity. Testing is a process here. The trial is a process. That's why he says, let patience have its perfect work. The testing will go on until full maturity is reached. And then we start to demonstrate Christ-likeness in our life. But we must let patience have its perfect work, accomplish what he needs to do in our lives. Why? Because there are no shortcuts to maturity. You cannot be mature overnight. It's going to take some trials. It's going to get some testings. Maybe God is doing that in your life right now, and you're discouraged. Well, I want you to know this. Let patience have its perfect work. God is doing something in you. He's producing something in your life right now that otherwise would not be accomplished without that trial. There is no other way of learning that lesson other than you going through this. But notice that you're just going through it. That means God's going to see you through that trial as well. That too shall come to pass. Notice at the end of verse four, what does he say there? Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the end result. That you be perfect, then you'll be mature. That's what perfect means. Or what about this, complete, which means whole. You won't be incomplete. Lacking nothing means wanting nothing. That's the type of maturity that you'll have as you let patience do what it needs to do in your life. You'll have mature spiritual character. You continue to develop in your walk with Jesus Christ. How about this? You'll be more useful to him. That just means to lack nothing. Lord, thank you because in the trial, you are making me mature, complete. I'm a whole. I no longer lack anything. I want nothing. God will use it as an instrument in your life to whatever is lacking in you to perfect you and to complete you. Now notice this as we look at verse 4. Endurance is not the goal only. You know what the goal is? Maturity is the goal. 
God uses endurance to give you maturity. This is why he says, then your endurance is going to grow. And as a result of that, you'll mature. So what are we learning here in verse 4? That trials are essential. Some lessons are taught. Some lessons you can learn right now through Bible teaching. But you know what other lessons are? Other lessons are caught. That means that you have to go through a trial to learn that lesson. And what does God do? He uses testing as a way of leveling us in our spiritual walk, of making us more like him, of weaning us. You know what a child, what happens to a little baby when they're weaning the baby? It's a very painful process for that baby, right? But you wean that baby as a step of maturity or as a step of liberty. And he says, this is the same process that God uses in the lives of his children to grow them up to be more like him. I like what, how this verse has been explained before this way, but you must let your endurance come to its perfect product. Notice that. Let the Lord do whatever he wants so that you may be fully developed and then perfectly equipped. If you avoid the trial, if you renounce when it comes to the trial, you'll never learn the lesson. God is doing something in us that we, don't, we can't think of. We, we may not have chosen it for ourselves, but God chose it for us because he has a greater purpose and plan. And notice there, in the following verse, verses five through seven, even eight, that it's not just a joyful attitude. It's not just an understanding mind. It's not just a submissive will that allows God to do that which what he wants in our lives, but it's also a believing heart. A believing heart, verses five through eight. So he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you know who's that? All of us. <laughs> All of us here need wisdom. You know when we need wisdom? Especially as we're going through trials. So that we don't waste the opportunity of what God wants to do in our lives. So that we don't waste the opportunity of what God wants to show us. I encourage you, as you're going through a trial, you know what you should ask the Lord in prayer? Lord, what do you want to show me? What are you trying to show me, Lord? because I don't want to miss out. Lord, give me wisdom how to navigate through the trial, how to understand how I am to endure in this circumstance. Why? Because wisdom allows you to walk through the trial in a way where you glorify God. And this is where he says in, in verse 5, telling the church that is going through persecution, you should live like Jesus did, step in the will of God, trust in his eternal plan. If anyone lacks wisdom, what does he say? Ask of God. Sometimes when we go through trials, what do we like to do? Right away, something bad happens. You know what? I'm going to call my friend. They'll get me out of this one. Oh, you want to talk to your neighbor. You want to talk to somebody that you think can help you in your situation. Number one, realize this in verse five. Wisdom is required, but wisdom must be requested. And that situation that you're going in right now knows wisdom is required. Before you make a move, before you do anything, wisdom is required. But wisdom must be requested. Ask of God. Learn that through the trial, you are gaining a greater dependency upon God through your prayer life. God has allowed that trial to come, notice, for one reason, to grow you closer to him so that you go to him, so that you ask God, so that you grow in wisdom. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? Ask, 
and it shall be given to you. God knows what you need, but he wants you to come and ask him. Knock and you shall, it shall be open. Seek and you shall find. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. And to him knocks, it shall be open. Ask of God if you need wisdom. And then when he gives you wisdom, you know how you should respond? By trusting in the Lord. Trust in the wisdom that he's given you. Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon, speaking of wisdom throughout the entire book. What does he say? Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall what? Direct your path. If you need wisdom, ask God. What is wisdom? You would say wisdom is the ability to apply the truth. You may have knowledge, but do you have wisdom? There's a lot of people that have a lot of head knowledge, but they don't know how to turn that into wisdom. They don't know how to use all that head knowledge. That, that discernment, that understanding, that only comes from God. Knowledge is, is raw information. But you know what wisdom is? How to use that raw information. You may know a lot, but do you know how to use it? Someone once said this, knowledge is the ability to take things apart. I think a lot of men can identify with that. You know what it says, but wisdom is the ability of putting things back together. That's what we need more of, right? Sometimes we can take things apart, but we can't put them back together. That's what wisdom looks like. They would say, Lord, give me wisdom so I know what you want to show me and I learn the lesson and mature through this so that I reach the goal of perfection, of completeness, for my good and for your glory. Now notice as we ask for wisdom, what we can expect from God. And this almost provokes you to go to him in prayer, the end of verse five. It encourages you. Notice what he says here. Ask of God who gives to all. He doesn't only give to some people. Circle the word all. God gives to all. There are times that people think that, you know what, the pastor, he, he has more wisdom or he has a better connection with God in his prayer life. No, you ask God. He gives to everyone as well. He doesn't only give to one person. He doesn't only give only to one group or to the person that's more experienced. No, just ask him. He gives to everyone unconditionally. Notice what it says. He gives to all. But how does he give to all? Generously. Verse 5, it says, liberally. He doesn't just give any type of wisdom. He gives you liberally. In fact, it would say according to his excellent greatness. He doesn't give you just a limited amount of wisdom. He gives you all the wisdom that you need for your situation. Today, you find yourself in a trial. He will give you all the wisdom that you need for that situation right now. Just ask him. Ask him, pray, go to him. And notice what's awesome about asking God. Not only does he give to all, not only does he give generously, but also it says without reproach, without limitation. He doesn't rebuke you for asking. He says, keep asking for more. I'll give you more wisdom. Well, you know what we like to do when people ask us for things? You have already asked me two times. Don't ask me again. God does not embarrass us when we go to him to ask for wisdom. God generally gives to all, liberally, 
without reproach, without limitation. He, he doesn't hold back. He's not impartial. He loves to give wisdom to his people. And notice here at the end of verse 5, and it will be given to him. There's the promise. There's the assurance. Wisdom is required. Wisdom should be requested. And then wisdom will be received. Today, that should be what we ask of our Lord. Would you give me wisdom? God can give you wisdom beyond your own experience. Did you know that? Isn't that what King Solomon asked for when the Lord asked him, ask me for anything, whatever you want, ask me right now. And he didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for a house. He didn't ask for anything else but wisdom. He asked for an understanding heart. You know what he said? I'm a child. It takes humility to be able to ask for wisdom. Did you know that the proud person will never ask for wisdom? What does the Bible say? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. You have to come to him in humility. You have to humble yourself to receive this. You can't receive this if you're so pompous and cavalier, presumptuous in your attitude. You think you know it all. You don't know it all. That's one of the things that trials remind you. Trials remind you how much you don't know. You know what trials remind you? You talk too much sometimes. And we're going to get to that in chapter 1. You know what trials remind you? You need more of God. Hold on to Him. 1 Kings 3.7, notice what Solomon prays. Now, O Lord God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I'm a little child. I don't know how to go in or, or go out or come in. Notice his humility. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge these great people of yours. In order for me to do that which you have called me to do, I need the wisdom of God. That's what Solomon said. Give me wisdom beyond my experience, beyond my years. Now, how does God provide wisdom? Two ways, through prayer, by you asking. But you know how else God provides wisdom? When you open your Bible and you read it. How about that? <laughs> Every single day, you should be reading Proverbs. Every single day, you should be reading the Gospels, the Epistles, the Old Testament, the New Testament, learning the wisdom that comes from God. That's where you find true wisdom. In Psalms 119, would you note this? Verse 98, you, through your commandments, notice the psalmist, what he says, make me wiser than my, than my enemies. You want to become wiser than those that are opposing you? Open up the scriptures. For they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I'm meditating on God's word. I know what to do. This is heavenly wisdom. This is spiritual wisdom. God is so ready to give to you the wisdom that you need for your situation. He gives liberally. He gives without reproach. There's nothing that you would ask him that he is unwilling to give you when it comes to wisdom. I like what John Newton, the author and writer of Amazing Grace, also said when he said this, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, 
For by grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Just think about it. For by his grace and power are such, because of his grace and power that are such, when you consider it grace and power, none can ever ask for too much. You know what you're asking for wisdom for? According to his power, according to his grace, you can ever ask for too much. And how are you to ask there in verse 6? Notice what it says. But let him ask how? In faith. Don't doubt. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. How to ask? Ask without doubting. Don't, don't be like a wave. That's, that's what a doubter looks like. He gives an illustration. A wave that's unsettled. A wave that is moved by the wind. A wave that is tossed by the winds from one direction to the other. He said, the, the people that ask for wisdom, but they doubt that God is going to give it to them, or they doubt in what God has said, is that they're saying, I trust God sometimes, but sometimes I don't trust God. You know what they're being tossed by, like those waves? They're being tossed by their emotions. They're being tossed from one direction to the other direction by their circumstances. Why? Because they're doubting. And he's speaking not of one way, but a succession of ways that constantly you go from one direction to the other direction, that you trust God in his wisdom, but then you're leaning on your own understanding another day. You're doubting like a turbulent sea. You know what that looks like? An unstable person. The unstable person is filled with doubt. They don't really trust God. And notice the instability, the unsettledness of that person is, is an evidence of immaturity in their life. They're, they're, they're fickle. They're, they're vacillating between two options because they can't make up their mind to trust God's wisdom. You can't trust waves. Go out into the water. You get too comfortable out there. You get wiped out quickly, right? One moment they're up, the other moment they're down. So he's saying the very same way. If we want the wisdom of God, we must have no doubt that when we ask, he will give it to us. Trust God. The man who does not trust God cannot be trusted by men. Do you trust God today? Because if you're doubting, if you're filled with doubt, notice what it says, verse 7, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. But while faith says yes to God, you know what unbelief says, doubt says? says no. Believing prayer takes the stand upon the character of God, knowing who God is. I know who God is, so I trust him at his word. I trust what he has said. I pray with faith. What is the greatest enemy of faith? Doubt, fear. When you pray, pray with faith. Pray trusting in who God is. Do not be moved. Do not be swayed. Do not be emotional. Grow up and be mature, he's saying, by trusting in his wisdom. Hebrews eleven six. you know what the apostle says? But without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. If you doubt, you can't please God that way. You cannot please God if you're doubting. You're doubting what he has said. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. I love that portion in that verse that says that he is. You must believe that he is who he says he is. You must believe his nature, his character, his power, his mercy, his wisdom, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now notice there, 
Verse 8, as we conclude, that person will not receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. He's a double-minded person. He's unstable. That means he's restless. What about this? Indecisive. He can't make up his mind. He can't decide which way he's going to go. When you're indecisive, notice indecision, is, it is a decision. You know what it is? It's a decision to do nothing. When you say, I'm not going to make a decision, notice this, you just made one there. You made the decision to do nothing. You made the decision to not trust God. You're doubting in the Lord. And when you fail to make the decision to trust in the Lord, circumstances will come your way and make the decision for you. He's unstable. He's unsettled. He, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. It's very important that we look at this verse and notice this. Do not be that person that you believe one thing, but you behave contrary to that confession. You say one thing, you proclaim one thing, but you don't live that way. He, he's unstable. He's undependable. He's fickle. He's emotional. One day he's following the Lord. The other way he's not. The other day he's not. His loyalty is divided here. Verse A, between God and the world. He's unstable in everything that he does because he lacks foundation. He's not sure of anything. He doesn't really trust God in the trials. He's unfaithful. He's double-minded. You know what this means? Double-minded? That you love God, but you also love something else. You also love the world. You know, we need a singleness of mind. They're saying, I'm only following Jesus, and that's it. I don't want to be double-minded. I want to be single-minded. And when you trust God, you know what that results in? Stability in your life. Unstable people, you know what they're filled with in their mind and heart? Doubt, fear. But your faith in God today can be a point of stability where you're saying, I, the things around you may be changing, but my faith in God has not changed because he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Make a choice about how you're going to live your life. In Joshua chapter 24, the Old Testament, as we come to a close, you know what Joshua said? He made a choice that his faith was real. He drew the line in the sand. He says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day who you're going to serve then. If you don't agree with serving the Lord, then choose this day. Make a choice right now. Don't procrastinate making a choice. Make a choice right now about how you're going to live your life. He says, whether the gods of your fathers that served on the other side of the river, those gods on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites, are you going to serve them instead? In the land whose you dwell? You can serve those gods back there. You can serve these gods right here. But you know what he said? His conviction, his courage, his obedience. I love that Joshua said this. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He made a decision. We're going to serve the Lord. And today, maybe you're going through a trial and you're saying, Lord, I need wisdom. I need wisdom, but... I haven't had that wisdom that I think is required. And what does the Bible say? It must be requested, and it will be received. Unlimited, generously to all, 
without reproach, without limitation, unconditionally. If today you find yourself in a trial and you're saying, today I need the wisdom of God, I want to ask that you would just stand together with me because I want to pray for you.